the best point of, our, of what we do. In, you know, we can stage everything, create everything, build everything, but actually the bit that makes things work is the accident, is the bit that you'll never get again. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a young quadriplegic rebuilds his life with the help of an unlikely service animal in director Nick Ham's drama, Gigi and Nate. Based on true events, the film tells the story of Nate Gibson, a young man whose life is turned upside down after he suffers a near-fatal accident. Although moving forward seems impossible, he finds much-needed hope with the assistance of Gigi, a curious and intelligent monkey trained to assist Nate with his basic needs. In addition to Gigi and Nate, Mr. Ham's directorial credits include the feature films Driven, Talk of Angels, and The Very Thought of You. The movies for television Dancing Queen and Soldier Soldier, and episodes of the series White Lines, Things You Shouldn't Say Past Midnight, and The Bill. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Ham spoke with director Ben Lewin about filming Gigi and Nate. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Well, first, Nick, uh, uh, congratulations on a, a very moving experience. Certainly it was Thank for you, me. The whole story had a kind of a ring of truth about it for me. And... Um, I wanted to ask you about the relationship of the movie to real people and real events and how did that dynamic play out? Hello, everybody. First of all, thank you for coming on a Sunday afternoon and thank you, Ben, for doing this. The film is um, inspired by a number of different stories. It, it's inspired by one particular story. Uh, when, I, when I found out um, that there was a particular individual who had a primate as a as a, um, as a companion I started to investigate other stories which involved um, an emotional bond between a service animal and um, different people and so even though the the movie is inspired by one particular person it's more um, it's more about the generality of the idea of what it means to have a relationship if you like between a, a monkey and a disabled individual. And, and one of the things that I learned at the beginning, as I, was, as I was talking to you before, when I first was approached about, of this, I thought, well, <clears throat> um, this, this idea, if you like, was, must have been very prevalent across the world, that there were service animals or service monkeys working in Germany or France or Italy or Europe, anywhere. And when I discovered actually that wasn't true, it was only in America, and that this organization that was doing it was now closing and had been operating since the 60s and working with this, um, initially with, uh, with people coming out of Vietnam and how that was going to work. I thought that this was a story worth telling because it was, a, if you like, an intersection of politics and personal uh, relationships. And that organization is going to close and um, I thought that was a particular piece of history that needed to be both recorded and talked about. 
have you had any feedback from, for example, the the, the person who had a, a service monkey? Has he seen it? Oh yes, I mean a number of people who've had service monkeys have seen it. Him, him particularly, um, uh, Ned has seen has seen the movie. And I think, as any filmmaker will tell you, uh, you, you know this as well as I do, Ben. When you make a story based on anybody who's who's um, still alive or still still functioning and still uh, conscious of their own life and going through it when you when you make any story that that focuses on them as a filmmaker you're at your most nervous right you you the moment you show them the film is the moment that you're most exposed and and, and that moment when we took the movie to him in Boston and played it to his family will remain with me for the rest of my life because I the family were emotionally uh, moved by the movie in a way that was beautiful to watch. And I remember just watching his face at the end of the film and his sister was sitting next to him and she was in tears and I went up to him and I just put my hand on his shoulder and I said, are you okay? And he said, I'm okay. And that moment, of course, he was... And I said to him before the movie, you will have a relationship with this film that no one in the planet will have. No one else will ever know what you've done. And that, as we all know as filmmakers, when we do stories about real life, can be, can be quite challenging. As, uh, it can be quite challenging if you don't get that story right. I, I, I can only imagine how gratifying it is to show what you've done to the people who inspired you to do it. Correct. I mean, it, kind of, it's the hardest audience you know, and look, as filmmakers, sometimes, and you know this, sometimes you're making a film about somebody and you, and you want to say things and you do say things that maybe they're not happy with and, and maybe that person's not that wholesome. Maybe that person needs to be exposed or needs to be told certain things. But this wasn't the case here. This was a case of a certain individual who'd gone through a lot, whose life had been changed radically through an accident and had pioneered this kind of treatment and this kind of work with an animal. In case, by the way, you're assuming that I'm here because of my relevance to disability, that's quite wrong. I'm here because of the monkey. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I hope this is not a a trick question, but why why isn't it Nate and Gigi, the title? Well, because I think it was an interesting question, a cheeky question. Gigi has a kind of filmic history, you know, when, also, when one thinks of the obvious movie, and I think it's a more glamorous name. And also I think to a certain extent all of the actors in the film recognise that one of the great performances in the movie is the animal. And that to me is a fascinating example of of where we are now um in our business and you and i've talked about this before about the pressure on us as filmmakers not to work with um animals in 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 an organic way but to work with with work with computer generated imagery and create these these relationships and i understand those arguments and we can support a lot of those arguments but what we will miss is the relationship and what you watched in that movie today is an extraordinary performance by an animal. A co- an animal who 
I can tell you, understood the art of acting at the end of the process of, of, of movie making. That when they first walked on set, they understood one thing. And at the end of the six-week process, they understood something else. And that was an extraordinary thing to witness. And that, that real-life, real beating heart conscious awareness is what we as human beings need to connect with sometimes when we're watching stories and that can only be done in a, in, in 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 particular circumstances um look you you've you've brought it up but uh, i mean it's a question that intrigues me for a lot of reasons you've really uh, gone head on into this debate about animal rights versus people's rights and it's quite a theme to take on and I'm sure that you you know it's probably uh, been a subject of a lot of discussion and stress for you and I just wonder how you feel now after having made what I think is a a very powerful statement that hasn't been made before. Uh, I mean this is not just a, a bleeding heart movie about a young man and his courage. It's a real issue that's out there that um, has divided people in a similar way to Roe versus Wade. And, you know, anyway, I, I, I haven't got a, a specific question because I don't think the movie takes sides. I think that the movie just kind of throws you into it. Um, and, I, I mean, that's what made me very curious. The movie doesn't take sides but you're head on into the debate just the same. We have a job to entertain, but we also have a job to illuminate, to discuss. And as filmmakers, we sort of take on subjects that frankly interest us and are part of the public and, and are part of the cultural debate of our times. You know, I've done movies about the peace process in Northern Ireland. I've done movies about the Dorian. I've done movies with different subject matters. This movie, I didn't want to come down on one side or the other. I wasn't really interested in, oh, this is this and this is that. Our entire culture is polarized. You cannot make any statements now in America or Europe, especially in America, that does not come down on one side or other of the political divide. And this is nonsense. There are subject matters and emotions and stories and ideas that live in the grey area, that live in that middle area between us all. And it's our job as filmmakers sometimes to illuminate those discussions and to bring them up. And all this movie does is tell a beautiful story, a true story, and ask the audience to have a debate about what is correct and what is right. And that's all we will ever do. It's not a piece of propaganda. It's not a piece of lecture. It's a simple argument that says, here's a piece of entertainment. Judge for yourself where you sit with that argument. And to me, that's our job. Uh, I, I think that's a, a, a very eloquent answer, which I wish I could have given. Uh, um, this is a... I know that the first chapter of the movie is about the boy as an able-bodied young man. However, I'm curious, 
in spite of that, was there ever any discussion about casting a real quadriplegic or paraplegic? Yeah, right at the beginning of the process, the casting agents and I, and they reached out to all of the disabled um, casting uh, companies and all of the agencies that represent disabled individuals. And it was a completely clear decision from the beginning that because the first 20 minutes of the movie is seeing an able-bodied um, individual, you can't do that. You sh- you, it's, it's impo- it would be impossible for me to represent that person, uh, you know, a living, walk- walking human being in that way, and electronically, with, a, with, with, with high... You wouldn't have been able to do it. The cost of the movie, would, it would have been impossible to do that. The movie would have simply not been made. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not putting it as something you should have done. Just no, I understand. About, yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been in the same position with the film The Sessions about a man and yeah. an iron lung, and <laughs> and I cast a an able-bodied actor called John Hawkes, and the very first thing he asked me was, "Am I taking work away from a disabled actor?" And I found that a fascinating question, and I had to be able to say, "We've been down that road. It was just impossible." Well, first of all, that was a brilliant movie, Ben. I mean, right? I mean, you guys he did one of the best movies. You know, that was a beautiful piece of work. And secondly, look, we're now entering a territory of another debate, yes. which is, you know, you can outside your sexuality, outside your race, outside your disabilities, outside your normalities, your normal, you're not, you're not, your your non-normalities, if you like. What can you, as an actor, do? What are you allowed to do now? What can you as a director do? What are you allowed to work on? I mean, that to me is a... I'm really glad that debate's happening. It's a progressive debate to happen. But I sort of... In this, con- in this context, I had no choice. In the context of... Actors make their own decisions about work they take on. All I would say is actors are actors. They, they go into this business to act, to imagine what people of different cultures and different experiences go through and they put that on screen or in the theatre and they deal in emotional truth. That's what actors do. They tell you emotional truths and the good ones do it brilliantly. And to circumscribe that politically is a very difficult, a difficult road for us to go down. Uh, yeah, like it or not, these things have become political. Uh, and I think that, that we live in different times and words like appropriation somehow are part of the lexicon. And I find it a difficult area to navigate. Uh, and I think that, you know, you have to bring a, a great sensitivity to it. Anyway, look, I, I just wanted to um, ask you also, you've done a, a lot of movies. You've you know, got a lot of mileage behind you. <laughs> and I one guess, way of looking at it. <laughs> you know, how is this one different? You know, what, what did it teach you? Is there anything that stands oh, out? Oh, gosh. I mean, look, most, you know, as, as you and I know, most film sets are, you know, they're crazy places. They're, mm-hmm. they're intense, uh, fast, massively complicated operations that involve three to 400 people just to get a close-up, right? 
you know, what, right? So why is there all these trucks when actually there's just one thing I'm filming? What, what this taught me about actors was amazing. Actors are extraordinary individuals. These, these actors in this movie stayed in character. You know, you can, you can rehearse a scene, work a scene out, block a scene, and, and, and normally in a normal situation, you're just looking for the emotional truth of the moment or the truth of that scene as a director, right? You're, looking, you're working in the scene, you're thinking the blocking. But when you put a wild element, element into that, when you put something that is not blocked, that is not rehearsed, that is not choreographed like you've done with the rest of the actors or the actors have worked out themselves, it's, it's a free-for-all. And what happens is the actors stay in character because the monkey's not reacting to the actor in character. The monkey's reacting to the actor. The monkey's having a reaction to the person. They don't know the actor's acting. They're, they're talking to the person in, or working with the person in real life. And that was fascinating to watch the actor's process as they stayed in character, dealing with something that was not planned. And then what happened is what you get is these incredible moments of accident, you know, which as you well know, Ben, is the best, is the best, is the best point of, our, of what we do. In it. You know, we can stage everything, create everything, build everything, but actually the bit that makes things work is the accident, is the bit that you'll never get again, is the moment on film which you've absolutely captured in that second. And that's what it taught me, that there is much more. I had a greater respect for the actors after that and the way they work than I had ever had before because I, w- I watched them deal with that and that made me think, my God, this is, there's, some, there, there's some skill there. Um, a- a- apropos, I, I absolutely agree with you and uh, at a certain point in my work, I stopped rehearsing. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to rehearse. I mean, certain things right. you have to rehearse, right. stunts or anything that involves right. any kind of risk. But where it was a purely dramatic scene, I stopped rehearsing. And unless the actor absolutely insists, I said, no, 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 want, want to see what you're going to bring. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you rehearse? I, I come from the theatre. So I did 10 years in the theatre in my 20s, working putting on plays, 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 plays. So I look at, I look at, I guess, slightly differently. Uh-huh. I like to rehearse weeks before we go on set. And then I like to... And here's the, here's the weird thing about film set, as we all know. The actor never gets any time, right? The DP gets his time. The sound gets their time. The, everybody else gets their time on a film set. And suddenly the actor walks on and they're supposed to go, bam, Well, they do, a lot of them, because they know the rules and they're great. But for the love of God, give them 20 minutes still, 10 minutes to actually navigate the furniture and think about what they're going to do and work them a little bit and and let them feel... They don't have to get full... They don't have to go from zero to 10 immediately, but they, they... it's wonderful for them to be given space on a set, which is their space. You're saying we should treat the actors like people? (laughs) (laughs) We should give them space to work. Yes. Now, uh, I I wonder whether being... I noticed that, you know, you're a producer on this as well. And I'm curious how, uh, to what extent does that change the dynamic or play into it? For instance... I don't know whether as you're shooting, do you rethink the message in the movie? Do you have the writer there? Are you talking to the other producers? Are you reshaping it as you go along or are you sticking to the blueprint? 
I constantly reshape, like I probably you do too. I have a very clear idea of what the movie is. And then I throw the whole thing out. And then I watch everything. And I have every single frame of that film in my head every day. I, I'm editing it as I'm shooting it. I'm processing it as I'm shooting it. And I'm going, okay, well, that's going to fit with this. And this is going to fit with that. And I keep like a kind of ticker tape rolling through my brain. So it's, that's why directors are impossible to be with when they're shooting movies. Because <laughs> they're just absolutely you know, useless idiots for anything else. So, no, I follow where I'm guided sometimes. And if, a, if an actor's doing something or a moment's happening or a story is going one way, I'll go with that. Um, just relative to my own way of working, one thing I noticed is a, a huge number of close-ups. So much of the is, is seen in big close-up. And uh, I was curious whether that was something that you... At, you know, at the time you saw it that way or was it a post-production decision, you know, that you, you looked at all your coverage and said, look, yeah, I want to see this movie played, the intense moments in big close-ups? That, that's a great question, Ben. You know, do you respond to the distribution of your movies, right, as directors? Do you say, okay, you know, a few million people are going to watch this in cinema but 100 million people are going to watch it on TV and 100 million more are going to watch it on their iPhone, right? Do you as a filmmaker respond to how films are put out? In this film, I use massive close-ups and massive wide shots and I juxtapose between the two really fast. And so I allowed the audience to be very intimate with those moments and then I took them way out into a scale which was cinema. So I pushed, the, I juxtaposed the two elements and push that within one purpose because I knew I've got kids and I know how they watch movies and I know how a generation is coming up through movies and to a certain extent you allow that to influence sometimes how you're going to make something. Um, yeah, yeah, look, I, I, I didn't factor that into it that you were <laughs> – that there is the recognition that ultimately people are going to be seeing this on a smaller screen and not a bigger one. Um, well, how many times have you got on a bus? Or, I mean, I live in London and, you know, I got on a train and seen somebody's work being watched on, a, on an iPhone. Well, I, right? I, I, And I that director would be going absolutely nuts that their work's been watched on an iPhone. I watched Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> on the back of an airline seat. Of course, of course. We all, we all know, do. My feeling is if a film can survive that, then it's worth seeing. Of course. I mean, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, let me just ask you what, what um, although this may seem a, a, a silly question because the whole thing is an obstacle course, but what was, uh, was there any obstacle that sort of stood out to you, um, or or more than one. I mean, what were the? I mean, the look, that you had uh, we, mind? you know, you you've been we've all been doing this. COVID. I shot this during COVID, doing full COVID, when the entire industry was like just recover. You know, it was just coming back, and as we all know at the moment, there's you know these protocols that allow that make you shoot in a certain way, and as any filmmaker will tell you who works in, a, in the independent section, section where there's a, a fixed budget for what you do, COVID can destroy your movie. 
it can, the budget can, the people can get it and you can be not shooting for three or four days or you can be not shooting for a week. And what's happening is that stopping movies getting insurance, stopping movies getting made, stopping good films from even getting onto the starting block because the barrier to entry now is so extreme. So you're having to put so much money, something like sometimes between 5 and 10% of your given budget. So in the, in the age of COVID, that, is a, that can derail anybody. I never expected that, that, <laughs> that answer, but it, it sounds very true to life. Nick, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your experience on this movie? Um, no, just really, I'm very, um, I'm very honoured to be able to, do, to have made the film. I, I'm, I'm happy with it. And um, I'm, I'm honoured that you're sitting with me now, Ben, and we're talking about it. You know, I've always admired you as a filmmaker. I think your films are extraordinary. And um, I'd like to salute you in this process as we're both sitting here because you're a fine man. I mean, one of the things I'm really envious about looking at this is that I, um, I love working with animals on the occasions that I've been, you know, well, quite a few films now, but never where the animal is as central and, um, I, I, I mean, I think working with animal trainers is one of the most creative parts of, of movie making too. I mean, you wish there was a, a person trainer. But um, uh, <laughs> how do you, I, I mean, do you get, did you get a lot of kick out of that, being able to use this? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it, it's also this, it, yes, yes. I mean, that whole element of working with the animal and all of the people that attend the animal. I mean, the animal walks around with three teamsters. Yeah. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's be honest. The animal's better looked after than anybody else on the set. All on right. on so, my movies, <laughs> they were always the highest paid <laughs> Way the higher than anybody else. <laughs> so that and the working with the CGI. And that, that was beautiful. That was I a process. I couldn't tell the difference between the CGI. That was the point of the movie, that, that you were going to, the CGI, the barrier to entry on the CGI. Yes. In other words, to create the computer-generated image of that monkey had to be so good because you had right alongside it the real monkey. So the technology has advanced to a point where we can now do that. Five years ago, we couldn't have done that. So movie making now has a, the, if you like, the avatar of, our, of ourselves and what the future of that is, is a fascinating journey because how far away are you from the, from the, the situation where you're going to create the avatar of movie stars and you're going to create the CGI of your favourite actor? Well, it, it's frightening, and I thought what you did there was seamless, and uh, I really couldn't detect one from another. Thank you. Um, I think uh, it's been a, a really fun experience for me talking to you about this, and I hope you invite me to do this for your next movie. I will, Ben. God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 